This is Burkittsville, formerly Blair. It is a small, quiet Maryland town, much like a small, quiet town anywhere. No more than 20 families laid their roots here over 200 years ago, many of whom remain, either on this hill or in the town below. There are an unusually high number of children laid to rest here, most of whom passed in the 1940s. Yet no one in the town seems to recall anything unusual about this time, to us anyway. Yet legend tells a different story, one whose evidence is all around us, etched in stone. Hello, friends, and welcome back to Deep Cuts, a horror history podcast brought to you by Late Night with Brian Wecht. I'd like to begin this episode by posing a question. Is there such a thing as truth on the internet? In this era of fake news, Facebook propaganda, and rampant conspiracy theories, can we really accept anything at face value anymore? And do we even want to? The internet has eliminated our sense of mystery. You have any information you could possibly want right in your pocket. What song is that? Who the hell is that character actor whose name I don't remember? How can I do my makeup without looking like a clown? How can I do my makeup to purposefully look like a clown? In a lot of ways, this is obviously great, but it's robbed us of this sense of wonder and of intrigue. It forces us to always be on our guard and to approach everything with skepticism. And this is obviously problematic for a subgenre predicated on the suspension of disbelief in the viewer wholeheartedly buying into the bit. So things are different now, and that's okay. But what's interesting to me is the landscape of truth on the internet in an era where things were shiny and new. When you could find like-minded people under a veil of anonymity in specific communities and share that wonder together. When the story of missing kids in the woods planted a seed of doubt and allowed your mind to wander. What if there really are strange forces in this world that we'll never understand? Last time we talked about Cannibal Holocaust, Ghost Watch, and old women kissing Satan's ass. So you know, the height of cinema. I'm glad you're joining me again for the continuation of our journey through the history of found footage. Today, we're going to cover some more interesting stepping stones leading up to a deep dive into the most infamous found footage movie of all time, The Blair Witch Project. I'm your host, Leighton Gray, and this is Deep Cuts. Welcome to the crypt. You are invited on a guided tour of a world of darkness where nightmares become reality. of that day were to lead to the discovery of one of the most bizarre crimes in the annals of American history. They're coming to get you, Barbara. What's your favorite scary movie? In 1992, around the same time as Ghost Watch, Belgian director trio Remy Belvaux, André Bonzel, and Benoit Polivord set out to make a pitch-black comedy horror mockumentary on the smallest budget possible, opting to shoot in black and white and often running out of film requiring the financial help of friends and family. The original French title, that I'm not even going to try to pronounce, roughly translates into English as It Happened in Your Neighborhood. Now it's known simply as Man Bites Dog. The movie follows the exploits of a charismatic serial killer whose murders are documented by an increasingly complicit crew of documentarians. Though not the progenitor of the charming, sophisticated killer trope, we can thank Shadow of a Doubt, Silence of the Lambs, Dial M for Murder, The 1988 Vanishing, which along with Possession is probably my favorite movie ever, and many others for that. Man Bites Dog is a great entry in the canon. Remy Belvaux gives a delightful performance that carries the film, and part of the reason it feels so natural is because he convinced his friends and family that he was just filming home videos, not an NC-17-rated movie about him being a serial killer. Spoiler alert, in the film he ends up in prison and is visited by his mother, who did not know this was part of a movie. Her tearful, distraught reaction is genuine. Man Bites Dog clearly inspired a generation of found footage that aims to just follow a serial killer around. Most notably, Behind the Mask, The Rise of Leslie Vernon, The Poughkeepsie Tapes, Creep 1 and 2, and Be My Cat, a film for Anne. As we get closer to the release of The Blair Witch Project, we get the honestly pretty mediocre The Last Broadcast, which people often falsely cite as the inspiration for Blair Witch. 
The timelines don't match up, and Blair Witch was well into production long before Last Broadcast came out. The Last Broadcast is a mockumentary about a bunch of kids venturing into the Pine Barrens to find the Jersey Devil, and then they all get killed. It's slow, boring, jarringly breaks out of found footage at the end for no reason and has one of the most whack and unearned horror movie endings ever. Also, it's not even about the Jersey Devil. Plot twist. The documentarian is the murderer. The Jersey Devil doesn't exist. It's like a movie where the Jersey Devil skips on over to Wawa to buy Tasty Cakes would be way better than this. And then there was this ripple of controversy in the wake of Blair Witch with erroneous reports that the filmmakers of Last Broadcast were pursuing litigation against Tixon Films in regards to stealing their ideas. None of that is true. It's just a good example of parallel thinking, a thing that happens way more than people think it does. So despite my clear disdain, I have to give this movie some credit as it is officially the first movie ever created with entirely consumer-grade equipment. Let's listen to this extremely charming local news story on the matter. Hi, welcome to Cover to Cover for April 1998. I'm Lee Wolf, and I'm coming to you tonight from the digital desktop, the realm where video and computers collide and make much of the magic we see on TV and in the movies. A new era in filmmaking is about to be released to the world. Two filmmakers have recently achieved a cinematic first, the first high-quality feature film produced entirely on the desktop PC. This exciting innovation didn't take place in Hollywood, New York, or Europe. It happened in Bucks County, Pennsylvania. Meet Stefan Avalos and Lance Weiler, the first desktop filmmakers. So uh, Lance and I actually were hanging out one night, quite literally, and we said, hey, let's make a movie. Let's see if we can make a movie that costs no money to make. Classically, movies have been using computers now for, I'd say, 20 years in terms of using them a lot and not just as a novelty. Well, those computers used to cost $80,000, $100,000, a million dollars. So when we, when we call this a desktop consumer type movie, this is a movie that uh, someone could go out to a store, buy the computer, buy the software, and make the movie. That's what we did. Uh, and because of that, it was really, you know, very cost effective. Even before the completion of the last broadcast, the future implications of this desktop film were enough to garnish national and international attention. The film is... Uh taken us all over the place, you know, I mean, what started out as a little $900 thing is, has been like a ticket to multiple places around the world. The web has really played an important part in the, in the film, you know, there's a character in the story. We uh, use the internet as a part of the uh, story. It's, uh, it plays uh, quite a large part in the story. And also we used it to start telling people about what we were doing. People could go to the website that we built and uh, they could check out the behind the scenes, the storyline, um, the aftermath of what has happened with the movie, and so on. So it's been an invaluable tool. The last broadcast made its world premiere at Doylestown's County Theater. Little known, the most who saw the film during its week-long run was the place in movie history that was carved here, for it marked the first time in the United States that a feature film was projected digitally to a movie-going audience. In the future, some may look back on the last broadcast as they do the first talkie, or the first color film, as an early pioneer that defined a whole new way to make movies. And I think that's the ultimate irony in this, is that we're not in Hollywood, and that is what the new Hollywood is going to be. People, it doesn't matter where you are, you know, where, if you want to make a movie, you'll be able to do it. If you're out in the middle of a cornfield, in the middle of Iowa, you'll be able to make a movie. That is the new Hollywood. Oh, whatever. I don't much care for a movie that promises me the Jersey Devil and then does not give me the Jersey Devil. Like, the Mothman prophecy sucks, but at least Mothman has phone sex with Richard Gere. I was really drunk when I watched that movie, but I'm positive that's exactly what happens. Don't fact check me on that. Anyway, moving on. Another little non-found footage stepping stone here is Hideo Nakata's 1998 horror movie Ringu, later remade by Gore Verbinski in 2004, is The Ring. Though not entirely found footage, the cursed avant-garde style videotape in the movie has definitely influenced the aesthetics of the genre. It also introduced to the mainstream this now done-to-death image of a ghostly woman with stringy black hair and a long white gown. Ringu remains Japan's highest-grossing horror movie to this day. And as a sidebar... Due to The Ring becoming one of the most profitable American remakes of a foreign movie, it also directly led to the movement of shitty American remakes of J and K horror, which really boils my beats. 
An essential part of why Japanese and other Eastern horror films are so effective and unique is the rich lore that they draw from, especially the Shinto religion and the folktale-based Kwaidan legends. When they're remade in America, studios either butcher or ignore the original folklore that the stories are based on and lose much of their impact. Learn to read subtitles and discover the rich world of foreign cinema, you cowards. Anyway, Ringu introduced the idea of ancient ghosts using the medium and language of technology to haunt us in the modern era, which, with the timing of its release, hits Y2K anxieties later exemplified in movies like Pulse, Megan is Missing, and Unfriended. All right, after God knows how long of a buildup, it's time to talk about the big one, The Blair Witch Project. Now, by this point, I assume we've all heard the stories about starving and tired kids in the woods getting terrorized by the directors of the movie. But there's a lot more to it than that, and I hope that you find this tale as interesting as I do. The Blair Witch Project is often written off now as being boring or a scourge on this earth for what it did to the horror genre, but I want to give it some love here because it is, and this is potentially a hot take even though I am correct, a fucking masterpiece. And the story that's overlooked here is one of sheer ingenuity, passion, and determination, and one I find extremely creatively inspiring. Why did it take decades of found footage predecessors for the subgenre to take off? What made The Blair Witch Project so special? The Blair Witch Project hit the cultural consciousness at just the right time. While we've already covered several prior found footage productions, it's worth noting that most of these were non-American productions, and none of them had the key element that cemented Blair Witch into the annals of horror history for good, the viral marketing campaign that invented viral marketing as we know it today. The idea for the Blair Witch Project originated in 1996. It all started with a tall tale. In 1996, producer Greg Hale approached his friend Ben Rock to tell him something interesting. He spun the yarn of the Blair Witch legend and the documentary crew that disappeared in the woods. Hale excitedly shared that he and his crew were going to analyze their recovered footage. Rock had no reason to believe this wasn't 100% true. He says, quote, all I wanted was to see that footage and to know what was on it, end quote. So of course, Hale then told him that everything he had just said was made up. The story was just believable enough and Rock was fascinated. Hale went on to tell him that he and the directors, Eduardo Sanchez and Daniel Murek, were working on making this footage a reality and Rock begged to be a part of the project. There was absolutely zero budget. It wasn't expected to really go anywhere beyond some small festivals, but everyone was so stoked to be involved that they jumped at the chance. At this point, they were unsure if this thing would ever get made, but moved forward, fueled by their passion for the project. Something this story shows us is that the filmmakers were considering the marketing angle from the inception of the project, which, in my experience, is what makes a piece of media organically shareable. Slightly shameful plug, but if you're interested in hearing me talk about more spreadable content theory, you can listen to my GDC talks on YouTube. Anyway, the first step for the Blair Witch team was creating a sizzle reel, essentially a trailer for the final product to communicate the ideas and tone. By chopping together some narration and clips from, as you'll recall, Hicks on Witchcraft Through the Ages, the team had their quote-unquote witch pitch. The new production company even went so far as to dub their newly founded studio Hicks on Films. After getting the sizzle reel in the hands of the producer and host of IFC's Split Screen, a showcase for independent filmmaking that thrust many later-to-be-huge indie filmmakers into the limelight, the short aired on basic cable. The small fee IFC paid the crew for the short, as well as a fee from another short they produced, according to Rock, comprised most of the film's shooting budget, which is estimated to be about $25,000, a significant portion of which was later spent on marketing. The casting process took a full year, Seeing as the movie revolved around following and terrorizing three kids who would be filming themselves and improvising off of no script, directors Eduardo Sanchez and Daniel Murek had to be picky. They needed someone who understood the heart of what they were doing at the project, someone who could think on their feet, and also literally stay on their feet through days of grueling hiking and camping. As the notice posted in the stairway of the building where the auditions were held read, you are about to read for the most demanding and unpleasant project of your career. If you are cast, we're going to drag you into the woods for seven days of hell. 168 hours of real-time improvisational torment. We're not kidding. So if you're not serious about your craft, then you're wasting your time in ours. The moment the actors came into the auditions for what was then called the Black Hills Project, Sanchez and Merrick started grilling them. 
As soon as they entered the room, the audition began. Some rolled with it, others clearly didn't understand. When a young and enthusiastic founder of an improv company entered the room, Sanchez asked her, you have served half of your sentence for killing your baby. Why should we let you out? Heather Donahue, the future star of the film, simply answered, I don't think you should. With the cast finally in place, in 1997, Mirak and Sanchez finally gathered their small but enthusiastic production crew and traveled to one of their girlfriends' packed condo in Maryland to begin shooting in earnest. The movie was famously improvised, the actors only being directed to GPS waypoints where they'd drop the day's footage, receive information on where to go next, and the general beats they needed to hit. This, however, required a lot of preparation on the part of the filmmakers. A few members of the crew were tasked with redressing the iconic three-story house in the climax, which was not a built set and instead was a real abandoned house they found, as there was clear evidence that homeless people had been living there. Meanwhile, the directors needed to first scout Seneca State Park in Gaithersburg, Maryland, where the whole thing was filmed. Uh, only the first scene was actually filmed in Blair. And set dress as needed with stacks of rocks and the iconic stickmen scattered through the woods. Which, another fun fact, Benrock came up with the stickman idea because they didn't have the budget to do anything else creepy. And they were like, all right, sticks are free. So anyway, this part of pre-production took three painstaking weeks for a shoot that ended up taking eight days. To quote Benrock, we weren't creating a movie which was figured out before we started. We were creating a massive funhouse to be discovered and documented by people who didn't know what they were supposed to find. While the filmmakers cited Cannibal Holocaust, Hickson, and Man Bites Dog as inspiration for the shoot, the most formative movie for the filmmakers was actually Christopher Guest's 1996 comedy mockumentary, Waiting for Guffman, because they couldn't actually get their hands on VHS tapes for the other ones. It was a simpler time. Decked out in camouflage, ski masks, and headlamps with red gels on them so as not to be seen, the directors followed the actors at a distance, staying just out of sight as they terrorized them. They carried walkie-talkies just in case for safety reasons. As producer Greg Hale told the actors prior to filming, quote, we're very concerned about your safety, just not your comfort, end quote. Of course, on the one occasion that the actors needed to walkie in for help due to a torrential downpour, the batteries had died and the crew missed their call. The actors had to walk to a nearby house, drenched and exhausted, and call them on a landline. This was the most danger the actors were ever in. But being kept awake by the crew slapping trees with branches and playing pre-recorded screams and sounds of children laughing was taking a toll. On the last day, Halloween of 1997, they were each given one water bottle and one microwave burrito to last them until nightfall. How are they supposed to microwave the burrito? I, it escapes me. I don't know. They're troopers. Good for them. By the end of the shoot, the actors were completely over it and ready to go home, especially to go shower. And with the final scene in the foreboding house in the woods shot, the production wrapped. Nobody knew the significance of what they had just accomplished. And now for a word from our sponsors. Hey there, folks. It's, uh, it's late in here from late night. So I've got good news and I've got bad news. And I'm going to start with the bad news. For those listeners who took advantage of our special offer in the last episode for the Toothly subscription box, we have a legal obligation to inform you of the developments of the past few weeks. Uh, Toothly is unfortunately currently under investigation for unethical business practices in relation to the sourcing of their product. The evidence thus far uh, points to the business operating as a cover for the disposal of human remains. So if you're in possession of any teeth supplied by Toothly, uh, you'll need to return them as soon as possible as all teeth are now considered evidence in the upcoming trial or else you could be charged with obstruction of justice. But don't worry, here's the good news. If you or a loved one purchased any human remains from Toothly, you may be entitled to financial compensation. We here at Late Night are proud to partner with the criminal law offices of Dixon and Dicklesby to make this process smoother. Call 916-900-2644 now for free legal consultation. That's 916-900-2644. And remember, the legal process doesn't have to feel like pulling teeth. All it takes is getting dick. Sin and Dicklesby. While the seemingly endless hours of footage were being edited down to feature length, 
the filmmakers submitted their second segment for IFC split screen, this time including some of what they shot in Seneca State Park. After this special aired, people took to what was, at the time, an exciting new realm, the World Wide Web, to discuss the veracity of the tapes on message boards like grainypictures.com. In fact, there was so much discussion that it was overloading the servers. The webmaster gently suggested to the Hickson crew that they start their own website dedicated to the legend. In May of 1998, www.blairwitch.com launched, which it's still up to this day if you want to check it out. Fans flocked to it, and Hickson Films was inundated with emails and requests for more information. The website used fake vintage photos the filmmakers staged, written legend, fake crime scene photos, pleas for information on the missing kids, and excerpts from Heather's journal. It's entirely convincing and was launched at a time pre-social media, pre-fake news, so it was more difficult to verify information found online. Instead of directly advertising a film, this grassroots approach formed a community of people who were invested in the case before it was even clear it was to be a feature film. There were over 20 million page views. The original plan for the movie was to use the footage we see in the final film as a base to build the rest of the movie out, true crime documentary style. There were to be interviews, in-world analysis, talking heads with friends and family to add a sense of realism, but they were out of money. They needed to find a way to make the original footage work on its own merit. The first screening was met with disinterest and complaints about the length. The second screening, after much more aggressive cuts to a class of film students and an advertising executive, all seemed to have the same reaction. This fucking sucks. This marked the first time the filmmakers felt truly discouraged about the project. What if the found footage concept didn't work after all? With this feedback in mind, the final cut whittled it down to a tight 87 minutes. This is the cut that, against all odds, made it into Sundance. Someone made a VHS copy of the screener that began to spread like wildfire, people passing along bootleg upon bootleg of this mysterious tape, fully believing it was real. In the wake of Sundance, Artisan Entertainment promptly bought the rights to the film for $1 million. From there, it became wildly successful. Lines snaking down blocks for early screenings, serious coverage in magazines and the news. This no-budget found footage project shot in the freezing woods by a group of film school friends worked. But the understated ending, at least in the eyes of Artisan Entertainment, didn't. They paid the filmmakers to return to Seneca State Park over a year after the original shoot to film four alternate endings where Mike is discovered, which are Mike hanging by the neck, Mike crucified on a giant stickman figure with stickmen dangling around him, Mike floating in the air, and Mike just facing the camera, seemingly in a trance. Though warned that keeping the original ending would likely mean the film would lose millions of dollars, the directors stuck to their guns, and rightfully so. Many viewers seem to miss the significance of Mike just facing the wall because it's explained by a brief blurb at the beginning of the film, which is easy to forget. But within the context of the Blair Witch legend, it makes more sense. The children that supposedly died in the house were murdered and disemboweled by Blair resident Rustin Parr in the 40s, who reported being haunted by a mysterious specter of an old woman who demanded he murder the seven children. He allowed one to live, but forced him to stand facing the corner and listen to the screams of the dying children. Hence, the iconic ending of the Blair Witch Project. So Blair Witch, though inspired by Cannibal Holocaust, takes this polar opposite creative tact in regards to shock value. Cannibal Holocaust is disturbing because director Ruggiero Diodato's creative ethos is to show everything. Blood, guts, murder, and gratuitous close-ups. On the other hand, Sanchez and Mirix Blair Witch has such staying power because the witch has only ever suggested. By taking the approach of showing nothing while ramping up the tension until it's excruciating, it allows the audience to build the monster themselves. And what could be scarier than your own imagination? The idea flew in the face of what people expected from the horror genre at the time, hot on the heels of the gory slasher franchises of the 80s. To be artsy and understated at this point was genuinely transgressive. Two months before the film's wide release in July of 1999, Artisan Entertainment worked with the Sci-Fi Channel to produce a short TV special called The Curse of the Blair Witch. Wedged between the typical late 90s daytime TV specials on Bigfoot and episodes of Forensic Files, the special contains unused talking head footage with experts and family members from the scrapped portions of the Blair Witch Project, actual footage from the film, all interspersed with the typical Ken Burns zooms on fake historic documents. It's genuinely compelling and worth the watch. It perfectly nails the kind of vibe and tone these specials have and very smartly focuses on the legend rather than exclusively being about the discovered footage. The Curse of the Blair Witch became one of the most viewed sci-fi shows of the summer, leading to repeated reruns in the months leading to the film's release. On July 19, 1999, 
The Blair Witch opened nationwide to 27 theaters, competing with Stanley Kubrick's intimidating Eyes Wide Shut, released on the same day. But the response and ticket movement was so immediate and profitable that within weeks, Artisan had extended the release into 1,101 theaters across the country, which at the time was the distributor's most widespread release. It was successful beyond their wildest dreams, landing the actors' guest spots on The Daily Show, Jay Leno, and on the covers of Newsweek and Time within days of each other. It was referenced on The Simpsons and parodied on countless other shows to this day. SNL, even in lieu of a sketch dedicated to the film, shot a message from Tim Meadows and Lorne Michaels where they explained that they simply refused to do yet another Blair Witch parody because everyone was so sick of them. Of course, this devolves into a Blair Witch parody. And who can forget the classic moment from The Office seven years later? It reminds me of the orientation video Michael showed on my first day, the Scranton Witch Project. I am so scared when people don't label their personal food. In short, it was a cultural phenomenon. And as with any massive success of something unique and interesting that flirts with the illusory nature of truth on film, people fucking hated it. Considering the widespread and ferocious hype building up to the release with people touting it as the scariest horror movie ever, it's no wonder a large portion of the mainstream viewing audience was disappointed. People felt tricked. Heather Donahue even won the Razzie for Worst Actress that year. After all, there isn't anything more to the movie than annoying kids screaming in the woods, terrified by piles of rocks, right? And it just ends with a dude standing in a corner? How could that possibly be scary? Even the sleepy town of Burkittsville, Maryland capitalized on the hype. The main street of the town turned into a cottage industry catering to tourists, hawking homemade stickmen, witch hunting kits, and witch-related hiking tours. Of course, this influx of Blair Witch tourism prompted local pearl clutchers to decry the film, almost cancel Halloween trick-or-treating due to the presence of so many Blair Witch fans, and even going so far as to hold a prayer service to, quote, try to take back what Satan is trying to destroy. Here's a recent news report talking about the response of actual Blair residents. In case you haven't heard over the last two decades, the Blair Witch is not real. The movie is based on a fictional urban legend, but missing posters used to promote the movie back in 1999 had a lot of moviegoers thinking the witch was real and that Burkittsville, Maryland was home to an evil presence. This sentence in the opening line of the Blair Witch Project is partially true. This is Burkittsville, formerly Blair. It is a small, quiet Maryland town. Burkittsville was never known as Blair, but the Maryland Village does exist. In 1999, people flocked to the town not to hear about Civil War history, but to find out if the Blair Witch was real. Saturday night, you'd think that we were a big town instead of a crossroads because there was all kinds of traffic going by. There were people that were removing dirt from the cemetery and selling it online. And that really, it left a bad taste in a lot of people's mouths. Because the actors had just been touted to the whole world as being dead, even their IMDb pages having been updated to say so, they faced backlash in their personal lives. People called their parents, asking if their children were really dead. People sent sympathy cards to Heather Donahue's mother. She's later stated in interviews that people would come up to her in the street and tell her that they wish she was dead and that they wanted their money back. And speaking of Heather... She continued her acting career in the wake of Blair Witch, one of the highlights of which was a role in the It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia episode, Charlie Gets an Abortion. I'm real glad you decided to do this, Charlie. Yeah, well, uh, you know, it's the least I could do, so. Yeah, I'm sorry I'm a lot of time. I'm gonna get to work. Uh, Tommy, come on in here, son. What do you want, Mom? He's a bit of a handful. Uh, Charlie and his friend are here. What do want? Tommy, come in here, please. Bullshit. Whoa. Whoa. Language, please. Hey. Which one are you f supposed to be my dad? Whoa, oh. hello. Right off the bat with the... <laughs> Tommy, be nice. But even better than this is that in 2008, she retired from acting to start growing medical marijuana and later wrote her 2012 memoir, Grow Girl, about her experiences. I knew after a while that I didn't want to be an actress anymore. I wasn't getting to do things that I was very proud of putting out into the world. I was very open to whatever was going to come next. Growing marijuana is an interesting job because it, it has so many different aspects to it. The actual growing, the actual contact with the girls, the plants, was amazing to me. Um, 
and there was nothing like the girls. It, it became really obvious to me why we have this long, intricate, and sometimes dangerous relationship with this plant. It's a, it's a total force of nature. Good for her. Anyway. Following the gangbuster success of Blair Witch, Artisan jumped at the chance to keep the cash cow going, but all the original crew of Blair Witch had moved on to bigger and better things, like growing marijuana. So they continued to churn out merchandise, toys, three video games, five books, and an eight-entry-long series of young adult tie-in novels, all without the involvement of people who made Blair Witch so incredible in the first place. Almost immediately after the success of the original film, Artisan greenlit and produced the financially successful but massively critically panned disaster of a sequel that eschewed the found footage element entirely, Blair Witch 2, The Book of Shadows, directed by Paradise Lost's Joe Berlinger. Last summer, after the crowds left, five strangers returned to the woods to uncover the truth. But one of them has a secret that will unlock the curse. You know, if you don't believe in the Blair Witch, then why the hell did you bother to come? I thought the movie was cool. I recommend getting drunk and watching it with friends. It's pretty terrible in a fun way. And then, 15 years later, still trying to bank off the success of the first and erase the bad taste left by Book of Shadows, there was Adam Wingard's 2016 Blair Witch, which is essentially a rehash of the original, but that actually shows Blair Witch, which sucks a lot of the intrigue out of the story. But there are drones, I guess. Cool. Modern. It's what the kids like. Drones. <sighs> All of this to say, the Blair Witch Project, whether you love it or hate it, changed the industry forever. A linchpin of its success was how it harnessed grassroots community mobilizing and transmedia marketing through TV specials and the website to create excitement. So you might be familiar with the concept of ARGs, which stands for alternate reality games, which are a form of transmedia storytelling that require the player to use real-world mediums and resources to solve puzzles and unravel the story. The Blair Witch Project's ARG is very notable, and considering we'll later talk about the ARGs it inspired, I want to break down its origins a bit before we move on. And listen, I know, I know. Mom, you're always trying to- Tell me about transmedia esoterica. What is it with you? I just think they're neat. So it's difficult to track the history of ARGs, considering creators have flirted with the idea in various forms for a very long time. That said, the first true inkling of alternate reality games was predicted in 1905 by mystery writer G.K. Chesterton's short story anthology, The Club of Queer Trades. In this instance, queer meaning peculiar. The through line of these stories is that they all circle back around to the titular Club of Queer Trades an organization you can only join by inventing a novel new way of making money. For example, a service where you can hire a guy to follow you around at parties and act dumb for the express purpose of you being able to dunk on him and look cool to your friends. One story in particular, The Tremendous Adventures of Major Brown, revolves around a private detective attempting to solve a baffling crime only to discover that it was all an elaborate game put on by a secret organization for another man of the same name. Let's listen to this bit from the climax, which I actually think articulates the appeal of ARGs remarkably well. Major, said he, did you ever, as you walked along the empty street upon some idle afternoon, feel the utter hunger for something to happen? Something, in the splendid words of Walt Whitman, something pernicious and dread, something far removed from a puny and pious life, something unproved, something in a trance, something loosed from its anchorage and driving free. Did you ever feel that? Certainly not, said the Major shortly. Then I must explain with more elaboration, said Mr. Northover with a sigh. The Adventure and Romance Agency has been started to meet a great modern desire. On every side, in conversation and in literature, we hear of the desire for a larger theater of events, for something to waylay us and lead us splendidly astray. Now, the man who feels the desire for a varied life pays a yearly or quarterly sum to the Adventure and Romance Agency. In return, the Adventure and Romance Agency undertakes to surround him with startling and weird events. As a man is leaving his front door, an excited sweep approaches him and assures him of a plot against his life. He gets into a cab and is driven to an opium den. He receives a mysterious telegram or a dramatic visit and is immediately in a vortex of incidents. A very picturesque and moving story is first written by one of the staff of distinguished novelists who are at present hard at work in the adjoining room. Yours, Major Brown, designed by our Mr. Grigsby, I consider peculiarly forcible and pointed. It is almost a pity you did not see the end of it. 
I need scarcely explain further the monstrous mistake. Your predecessor in your present house, Mr. Gurney Brown, was a subscriber to our agency and our foolish clerks, ignoring alike the dignity of the hyphen and the glory of military rank, positively imagined that Major Brown and Mr. Gurney Brown were the same person. Thus you were suddenly hurled into the middle of another man's story. If you've seen David Fincher's thriller, The Game, starring Michael Douglas, it's the same idea. So this concept of a sprawling alternate reality game dates back to this story from 1905. From there, we can see bits and pieces sprinkled through the 20th century in the form of novels, TV specials, and the live-action role-playing community especially, otherwise known as LARPing. But what made the Blair Witch Project ARG so different was this. It landed at the exact right moment on the internet, 1999. The days of GeoCities and Usenet, before social media, smartphones, and when the internet felt like a geographical place as opposed to this shitty cling wrap digital layer over reality. It was the wild, wild west, where people finding some weird website describing a genuine mystery felt like a true discovery. People got to be a part of something and participate in unraveling a story with people from across the world in a new and exciting way. In 2001, Microsoft developed what is widely considered the first truly build intentional ARG, a game called The Beast, created as a tie-in for the movie AI Artificial Intelligence. But Harry Knowles, creator of Ain't It Cool News and the first to break the story on The Beast's ARG, has stated that while The Beast ARG was influential, it was an interesting game that built up to a movie that was a flop both financially and critically, leaving players disappointed. Whereas The Blair Witch Project delivered a movie just as interesting and cohesive as the ARG. And that's where Blair Witch's staying power comes from. It's relatable, grounded, and the mythos leaves just enough unanswered to allow the viewer to fill in the blanks with their own fears and theories. It's an exercise in collaborative imagination, and the same applies to a well-crafted ARG. Both The Blair Witch Project and, to a lesser extent, The Beast, served as springboards for future successful viral marketing campaigns such as Cloverfield's Slush Show ARG, which we'll get back to in a moment. But the thing is, as I mentioned at the top of the episode, by 2020, we've become oversaturated with them. We know the beats. The internet has fully adopted the language of late-stage capitalism, and thus, the endless ARGs we see now have gotten progressively more craven about solely existing to hawk shit at you. And with the sheer speed and scale at which the internet moves, ARGs just don't have the kind of teeth they used to in the quiet world of 1999's internet. The idea of people freaking out together on Usenet over some creepy recovered VHS tapes at this point sounds downright quaint. I can imagine it now. The Blair Witch Project ended up grossing $250 million worldwide, making it the most profitable independent film ever. That is, until almost a decade later, when one director turned a little $15,000 paranormal found footage film shot in his own home into $193.4 million at the box office, making it the most profitable film ever made, independent or otherwise. Of course, I'm talking about Oren Pelly's 2009 film Paranormal Activity, but we'll revisit that in the next episode. So I'm going to take a little sidebar here to talk in detail about a lesser-known 2007 found footage movie because I'm terribly biased and it's one of my favorites, The Poughkeepsie Tapes. It's a mockumentary-style film, not dissimilar to the format used in the last broadcast, just better, following the story of a serial killer with a flair for the dramatic who taped all of his murders. It straddles the line between being a cheesy homage to the slew of early 2000s true crime docuseries such as Forensic Files and being an upsetting nearly neo-extremism snuff film narrative. It nails the aesthetic, and it's worth taking a sidebar to explore where that distinctive true crime documentary style comes from, considering the filmmakers have stated that their inspiration comes directly from Man Bites Dog in The Thin Blue Line and that the later Australian diet horror found footage film Lake Mungo takes the same tact. Also, it's interesting, and I'm going to force you to listen to me talk about it. I'm sorry. Errol Morris's 1988 documentary, The Thin Blue Line, follows the story of Randall Dale Adams, who was wrongly convicted of killing a Dallas police officer in 1976. It introduced the world to true crime tales conveyed through talking head interviews with experts and those involved, as well as dramatic reenactments of the crimes. 
The documentary is so effective that it led to Randall Dale Adams's case being reopened, and he was cleared of charges in 1989. As is now standard in, and I hate this term very much, prestige true crime documentaries, it's particularly unsettling due to the interviewees staring directly into the camera as they speak. This was achieved through Morris's precursor to his later inventive shooting technique that he dubbed the Interotron. The effect is achieved as follows. The interviewer is seated in front of the camera, which is rigged with a two-way mirror. This is how most teleprompters work. But in this instance, it acts as a monitor, so the subject is staring directly at a reflected video feed of the director, who sits off to the side with an identical setup. This way, the camera is able to capture a clear feed of the subject while also allowing the director and interviewee to speak face-to-face through the mirrored glass. Anyway, the Poughkeepsie Tapes was very faithful to this vibe. Director John Eric Dowdle has described the production process as being driven by the idea of, quote, trying to make the no-budget look big-budget, and a true crime mockumentary seemed like the perfect vessel for it. The cast and crew was small and mostly consisted of friends. The torture victim, Cheryl Dempsey, was played by Dowdle's wife, a role she jokes she got as a honeymoon present. Dowdle's brother co-wrote and produced the film, which was shot in 15 days. There's a sequence where they needed 20 actors to play a SWAT team raiding a house, and they could only afford to rent four SWAT outfits, so they did some tricky editing with the same four guys to get the effect. Dowdle did all the visual effects in the film by hand. By the way, fun story involving Dowdle's wife. There are some pretty brutal scenes of her character being repeatedly drowned by the serial killer that she was extremely excited to film. She said it was the moment that they all realized they were really going for it and that it was super fun to go full unhinged with her performance. But as Dowdle was directing it, he was off-camera crying over watching getting his wife roughed up. John Eric Dowdle, the ultimate wife guy. Anyway, I digress. Though missing the ARG element that has propped up many post-Blair Witch found footage films, the Poughkeepsie tapes created a mythology of its own completely by accident. It's worth noting here that in interviews, the director and writer have stated that they made several fake web pages that listed real serial killers with information on the fake serial killer from the movie thrown in. But despite lots of scouring the web, I can't find any evidence of them. But beyond that, originally slated for a 2008 release, MGM pulled the film five weeks prior to the official release date. A second release date for 2009 was then proposed. And then it just disappeared. It wasn't even available as a VOD release until 2014, where it was promptly removed after a mere month of availability. For nearly a decade, the only way you could get your peepers on it was to find a torrent in negative two megapixels and pray you weren't going to release a horde of viruses onto your computer. Finally, Scream Factory quietly released it online in 2017, and it's streaming on Amazon Prime now. Many rumors as to why it fell out of circulation have floated around for years. One suggests that audiences thought that the snuff tapes the film centers on were real. Another suggests it was due to a poor response in the festival circuit even more positive that the content was simply too brutal to expose unsuspecting audiences to. Due to the documentary-style presentation and the genuinely disturbing fake snuff tapes within, this actually added to the mystique. Watching it as a low-quality rip on YouTube or a DVD your friend burned made the film more effective. In the -the behind-the-scenes interviews on the Poughkeepsie Tapes Blu-ray, which I own, the director, as well as his wife, who, as I mentioned, plays the torture victim in the film, agree that not getting a theatrical release was a blessing in disguise, that it's a movie designed to be experienced on a shitty little TV in the dark. If you're a connoisseur of creepy internet gifts of spooky dudes crawling around, such as the infamous clip of a creature on the side of the road from the campy 80s alien movie Extro that's often touted as being real footage of a skinwalker, you've probably seen some clips from the Poughkeepsie tapes. Dowdle later went on to direct the American remake of one of the best found footage movies of all time, Wreck, that's bracket, R-E-C, bracket, under the name Quarantine, as well as the spooky elevator movie Devil. After that, he directed the actually pretty great 2014 found footage movie As Above, So Below. I find this one largely slept on, and that's sad because it's super fun. It's like, what if Indiana Jones was a pretty lady whose love interest was Ginsburg from Mad Men, but also they were stuck in the Paris catacombs and there were ghosts and stuff? Definitely give it a watch. As well as Wreck, which I stress, one of the greatest found footage movies of all time. Anyway, around this point is where the cultural language around found footage shifted. I would say at least in part due to the rise of non-horror found footage. The early aughts saw comedy TV following in the footsteps of Christopher Guest's style of comedy mockumentary a la Spinal Tap and Best in Show. The Office, Arrested Development, Trailer Park Boys, and Parks and Recreation all ran with the approach and garnered wide critical acclaim. 
Even now, shows like What We Do in the Shadows and American Vandal are still successful. There's something interesting about how found footage interacts with the language and beats of comedy versus how it interacts with horror. This is something I think about pretty often, considering that horror and comedy are more similar than one might have you believe. They're both structured around surprising the audience. One is with a funny joke, the other is with something scary. For a joke, you have a buildup to establish an expectation, subvert the expectation, and then you have the punchline that brings it all together. For horror, it's the exact same, but the punchline is a jump scare. It's all about that tension. Anyway, all that to say that The Office isn't all that different from Cannibal Holocaust structurally, if you, like, really think about it. Probably. So with general audiences at this point more familiar with the language of found footage and the approach being proven to interest audiences, the industry plowed forward. If you were a theatergoer in 2007, settling in to watch the biggest blockbuster of the summer, the first entry in Michael Bay's Transformers series, you would have seen a mysterious teaser trailer. It featured shaky footage from a party in New York City, followed by explosions in the skyline and the striking imagery of the Statue of Liberty's head crashing into the street. There was no title attached to the teaser, only the release date, 08-1808. And more importantly, a producer credit for J.J. Abrams, who at the time was known primarily for his work on Lost. As intended, people lost their shit for it. People speculated all sorts of things, that it was about biblical monsters, or another Godzilla movie, or a Voltron movie, or maybe even something Lovecraftian. Of course, the flash of the Bad Robot Productions logo was a glimmer of hope for Lost to come to the big screen. Only adding to the hype was a series of websites and MySpace pages planted as grassroots marketing. Surely inspired by the success of Abrams's tie-in ARG to his show Lost, The Lost Experience. As director Matt Reeves says in this quote that's rambly even after me cutting out a paragraph, quote, It's almost like tentacles that grow out of the film and lead to the ideas in the film. And then there's this weird way where you can go see the movie. But there's also this other place where you can get engaged where there's this other sort of aspect. The internet's sort of stories and connections and clues are, in a way, a prism, and they're another way of looking at the same thing. To us, it's just another exciting aspect of the storytelling. So as you unraveled the threads of the story, or uh, the tentacles, the prism, metaphors, the Cloverfield ARG provided some context to the story that's ultimately inconsequential and kind of nonsensical. The deeper story involves, you know what? I think some very insightful theory videos from circa 2007 YouTube can explain it better than I can. Personally, I thought it was a, a new Godzilla movie. Yeah, I thought it was a Godzilla movie. You know? It made sense. It, it did, you know, I mean, like the, the, the Statue of Liberty going down and I was like, oh, oh, damn. Something like, um, it's going to be something with a human face and a lot of scales or it's a giant whale. We just said, you know what, maybe it's just big blob of mass that just doesn't have a definite shape. Exactly, it could be like a cloud. Some stories about, I don't know, they incorporated like slushos and a slusho which is like a drink or something. Like, I don't know, they incorporated like pollution, how it feeds this monster or something like that. This is the Cloverfield, it's still alive theory. Uh, I'm gonna conduct my own little kind of experiment and deal with it. Uh, I have, just to show you, I have uh, Audacity and the actual original help me or help us file thing so here we go i'm gonna play this recorder on audacity and then uh play it in reverse here's what the audio sounds like okay now what i'm gonna do click that here's what it sounds like in reverse i'm gonna hold it up to the speaker In case you couldn't hear it too well, I'm like 99.9% .9 sure that it said it's still live. I think I think I know how HUD got killed now. HUD probably got killed because um, he was drinking slush show, which ingredients was like, I don't know, bad or something. And probably um, slush show's ingredients were from underground or under seas and stuff. And... What I learned was that those seaweed things, it makes stuff expand. And apparently, I think the monster likes slush oil or something because of the, the ingredients and, um, and those crab things, those crab people. Why is there a horse underground with um oven? Look at this crab. I'm pointing at like, this crab and look, this crab's mad. Yeah, I don't get it. 
So we have uh, eco-terrorism, a mysterious company, slushies, uh, who knows? But hey, you could get a slusho AIM avatar. And if you solved the puzzle on one of the websites, it would give you a number you could text to receive a phone wallpaper of a destroyed New York City and a ringtone for the roar of the Cloverfield monster. Your razor or sidekick phone could be tricked out as fuck. Hey, remember when you could accidentally connect to the internet for 30 seconds and then your phone bill would have a huge charge on it? Let's bring that back. I think we should all be punished for logging on. Anyway, Cloverfield is notable to me at least primarily because it seems to be remembered more for the effective and engaging ARG than for the movie itself, much like The Beast, as we talked about earlier. Not to say that it's not good. It's a fun time. But much like the series of diminishing returns of the many sequels, Cloverfield is ultimately pretty forgettable. And that's where we'll close the book, or I guess pop the haunted VHS tape out of the VCR, on this episode of Deep Cuts. Join me next time for the final installment in our series on found footage, where I'll cover what happens to found footage in the modern era of the internet. God, this keeps happening. I swear, ever since we recorded this last episode, I've been hearing really weird shit in my apartment. And maybe it's just paranoia from getting too stoned all the time and watching horror movies, but like, it's freaking me out. Like, the guy who lived here before me actually died in here, and I keep getting his mail, and, like, legally, you cannot throw that away. But I actually did get some weird packages of, like, doll heads, and I did throw that one away. Should I admit to a federal crime on this podcast? I don't know. Whatever. Uh, But, yeah, I promise next episode there won't be any weird noises or, you know, shit like that. Anyway, thanks for listening. See you later, and stay spooky. Goodbye. Deep Cuts is a Late Night podcast, written and hosted by Leighton Gray and produced by Jarek Centeno, with music by Brian Wecht, Jarek, and Leighton. For sources, transcripts, and info on where you can watch the movies I talked about in this episode, you can visit the link in the description. You can find us on Twitter at Leighton Night and on Instagram at Leighton underscore Night. If you want to hear minisodes, sneak peeks for future episodes of Deep Cuts, videos, and more, you can subscribe to our Patreon at patreon.com slash Night. But no pressure.